Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And today on the program, I'm so happy to have Jeannie Gaffigan joining us via phone from New York City. Um, Jeannie, welcome to Living Writers. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, well, you know what? Gina and I are just cheering here because it's great to hear your voice coming across the um whatever, like, the, the metaphorical phone lines that exist now out there. It's it's great to talk with you, Jeannie. Thank you. Um, so to, you, we're talking today with Jeannie Gaffigan um, about her book uh, just out this year with Grand Central Publishing. Um, thanks to Linda Duggins for sending us a copy of the book, When Life Gives You Pears, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People. Um, Jeannie, before we get started with the book, uh, talking about the book, I'll, I'll go ahead and read your bio that's in the book to kick this off. Jeannie Gaffigan is a director, producer, and comedy writer. She co-wrote seven comedy specials with her husband, Jim Gaffigan, the last four of which received Grammy nominations. Jeannie was the head writer and executive producer of the critically acclaimed The Jim Gaffigan Show, which was loosely based on her and Jim's life. She co- collaborated with Jim on the two New York Times bestsellers, Dad is Fat and Food, a Love Story. Jeannie, with the help of her two eldest children and some other crazy moms, created the Imagine Society, Inc., a not-for-profit organization that connects youth-led service groups. Most impressively, she grew a tumor on her brainstem roughly the size of a pear. Jeannie presently lives in New York City with her five children, which feels more like six children if you include her husband, Jim. Jeannie, again. Yes, that's me. That's you. That's <laughs> you on the other end of the line. Um, and you're you're talking to us from your home um, in New York City. Uh, Jeannie, when did you uh, decide that you were going to write a memoir about this experience, um, I suppose, obviously well, you know, after it, having it, but <laughs> it basically, I during the um, the time um, from the diagnosis to the sort of urgent surgery that I had, um, I was trying to cope with all the crazy thoughts that were going through my head. Was I going to die? What legacy was I leaving? How were my children going to handle it? And so right away, I started sort of expressing myself through writing. So when I was, you know, in the MRI machine, all these thoughts kept occurring to me about like how kind of like funny (laughs) it was to be in an MRI machine. So when I would come out of, uh, you know, they sort of eject me from the machine and Jim was at my side, like, how are you? How was that? Because it's like super scary to go into these little like, you know, spacious age coffins. And it's so loud, isn't it? I would be like, it? write down these like five observations that I made because I don't want to forget them. So during the time of um, my stay in the hospital, because after the very successful surgery removed my tumor, um, I contracted a double lung strep pneumonia. So I was not able to actually physically write anything. Um, but I had all these thoughts going through my head. So whenever I could, I, you know, would try to express myself to whoever was with me 
write this down or, um, you know, I have a list of do's and don'ts or right. things like that. Right. So, uh, and as I was recovering then at home when I was still um, bedridden on machines and, and things like that, I, um, and I started to be able to like use my phone to basically like, you know, text people and say, come over and visit me. I'm lonely. Um, I started writing notes down about how I felt and uh, funny things. And um, I compiled all this writing. So um, it wasn't like I really decided to, in, in retrospect, to write a memoir. I just had this way of coping, just like anyone who is a um, musician or a painter or whatever would would use their art to kind of express, express like kind of to cope with their feelings. Um, that's like what I do. It's like, that's my thing. So um, when I was um, kind of in the middle of it all, I was still like kind of producing stuff, even though it w- might've not had proper, you know, punctuation and some of it sounded <laughs> like gibberish. So um, my, but prior to my, um, uh, you know, diagnosis, I was, I'm working on a book manuscript that was sort of a funny, like, um, you know, uh, in the, in the genre of like, um, you know, the Irma Bombeck of the crazy mom with all the kids who's like trying to be funny about things. Was it the laundry um, book, Jeannie? Sorry. Was it the laundry book? Was it the one that well, in the yeah, acknowledgements? I, mean, I call it the laundry book, yeah. but, <laughs> okay. um, I I call it the laundry book, but it was just because it was like my laundry room is very organized and I have a lot of lists and and post-it notes everywhere to kind of keep everything going. Mm -hmm. And people think it's really funny that I have signs all over my house, like telling people what to do and how to pack and, you know, and everything like that. So I had this sort of idea for, you know, or people were kind of approaching me like, how do you do it? How do you travel with five kids? How do you keep all this stuff going? And I do it in a kind of a really funny, like OCD kind of way um, with like a lot of post-it notes and, and, and Sharpie marker signs all over the place. So I was kind of doing a, uh, a funny book that was a lot of colorful pictures, like kind of an oversized book, like of the, you know, Amy Sedaris type books that she does where, you know, there's big pictures and, you know, and then a page of writing yes, and things like that. So... I was working on that, and I had a um, an agent who I'd worked with with both of the books that um, I um, story edited for Jim, which is Dad is Fat and Food a Love Story. Um, so Simon Green was our, my agent, and um, he was you know interested in this kind of like you know the mom book, you know the funny mom book. <laughs> and so several weeks into my recovery, Simon visited me, and I in my sort of like, you know, I'm past my due date type, like, you know, not, right. not pregnancy, but like, you With know, the, a, a paper is due. The date. manuscript delivery. The manuscript date. I was like, Simon, I'm, I, as soon as I get better, I must, you know, finish that book. And he was like, no, there's no, that's not the book that you need to write now. Like people want to know what the heck happened and how yes. this is affecting your life. So when I, and also he was like, a lot of people were asking like, what happened? And I realized that I didn't really have a grip on what happened because it happened so fast. And before I knew it, I was like lying on my back, like, you know, considering like death and all this stuff. So, 
um, I started to sort of write down the chronology of what happened um, from, you know, the moment that first moment I really realized that I couldn't hear out of one of my ears to, you know, kind of getting rushed into surgery. And as I was writing that, I started looking at the notes and um, poems and lists and stuff that I had sort of compiled over this period of time. So I had this really great window into what was happening to, you know, me as I was sick because I was, I had actual notes. I had like primary sources, you know, completely. You could match them. I was sort of interviewing myself in that way. Right. And also when I was explaining the chronology, the people, you know, characters would come in. And then I realized I had to explain the character or explain where I came from and all this stuff. So, Basically, in the year, you know, that I was recovering, I just produced this manuscript. And, you know, by, I would say, um, October, November uh, 2018, so, you know, about a year and change after my surgery, I had, like, a pretty substantial manuscript. And I gave it to Simon, and he was like, okay, take this and make a proposal out of it because I think that people might be interested in publishing this. So I made like a, you know, 100-page proposal with the highlights and um, shopped it around and got some offers and went with uh, Grand Central. And my editor there used to be at Crown where we did Dead and Fat and Food Love Story, and she was now at um, Hatchet, which is... Um, Grand Central, and um, we ultimately decided to work with um, Suzanne O'Neill again, the editor that we've been working with for years. So, um, so yeah, that's how, kind of how the 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 book came to be. It wasn't kind of like I, you know, didn't have anything. I had something before I even had, you know, the, you know, really kind of motivation to put it out there. And and so this and it then it sounds like. Um... There, these look things fell into place after all this work where you had the outline and then you were able to match up these artifacts, the artifacts that you had been producing and generating and collecting throughout this whole um, year of recovery. Um, but then the person that you had worked with before happens to be that Simon happens to say, you know, what you need to do is a memoir, which probably felt really true to you when you heard that as well like this is the story the urgent oh, actually, story to... i was very resistant oh you were to be honest why was, because because i was really obsessed with writing my other book ah and i was like can i just because it was such a great idea and i it for and it was also like it was i just thought it was so fun you know to have like a big like almost like halfway between a regular size book and a coffee table book right with, you know just kind of this really fun like look at you know, it's kind of like a how-to, you know, book, but right, for a or, crazy person. Like, or a survival and, guide, right, in some ways. Yeah, so, you know, it's like uh, a survival guide for, you know, a disorganized person trapped in a type A, you know, <laughs> right. mindset. So, um, and so I was like, can't I just write that book and then put a chapter at the end that's like, by the way, I had a brain tumor? He's like, no. <laughs> right. Oh, so that was so your way of trying to get fun. out of it. You were trying to, yeah. Um, well, and so, well, I think that it would be difficult because a memoir is, um, 
it seems like probably during the I, I was struck by thinking that this during the time that you're making this, you're probably still processing everything, um, oh, yeah. the reverberations of it. And then to be writing the story, too, um, although it makes well, it... I'm still no, I'm still processing it. I'm still processing it. I mean, it's like I'm it's still like my life now post surgery is still evolving. So I one of the one of the things that I think is really kind of important to for me is that I when you hear memoir, you think I'm going to spend 10 years compiling my life. And even when I had a couple of the meetings with different publishers, and they were like, you know, you talk marketing and you talk, you know, you talk about things that really I wasn't concerned with. I was just concerned about, like, am I going to help people? Yes. I mean, and I don't want to sound like a humble brag at all because I, it's just that I didn't really have a motivation to, like, sell a bunch of books. You know what I mean? It right. was not really my purpose. So I would hear, but publishers need to know that they're going to, you know, people are going to read the book. So they were like, we think Mother's Day 2020 would be a great goal. Oh, geez. And I was like, that seems so far away in like, you know, late 2018. Yes. Right. So I was like, I don't, I just want to write what I am right now. Like what is happening, what, where I am right now is the motivation I have. Because in Mother's Day 2020 or, in a in six months, if I have an, another year to really work on this book and make it perfect and make it like, you know, a classic or whatever. Right. I am going to be a different person you... and have a different attitude and have learned different lessons from it. So right now I feel like I need to tell this story right now because I want to move on and process it. It's a, it's a little selfish, but it's also like when I got diagnosed and I had like three days to consider was I going to be, if you know, if I made it, was I going to be someone who was very compromised physically and mentally? All right. So mm. imagine that. No, yes. So yes. at the time, all I wanted to do was read a book. You know, I, you, you get on the Internet and you're like, who had a brain tumor and right. lived, you know? right. But, on their brainstem with that that's specifically exactly like my situation right. or something like it that's that big of a deal and you have to it's not like okay you have your diagnosis because there's lots of terrible things that can happen you can be like okay you have this thing you have you know six months of chemo to shrink the tumor and then you're going to have surgery it's not it's you have different like you have a long period of time to to process it or you're like me where they're like we need to remove this immediately yes and so you don't have a lot of time to like mull over the end game so i didn't have any resources to kind of help me with it so what i wanted to do was the purpose in it was to a be able to like cope with to, to reconstruct the story for myself to kind of walk through, like, did this really just happen? And and how are all these, like, miraculous things? Like, is it miraculous, or is it just, like, a series of uncanny coincidences? <laughs> I have to explore yes. how, you know, faith, family, and funny people got me through this situation. 
so um so my motivation to do the book right away was also for other people it was for myself and it was also for people who are just going along in their life completely overwhelmed with the busyness of the day-to-day and can't and, and never even considered that something would come along and alter their reality but the truth of the matter is is that i'm sure everyone on listening can name people if it's not themselves where something like this happened to them like all of a sudden yes yes their life changed yes. and the rug got pulled out from under them. Now, and maybe most people uh, don't haven't had that experience yet, but the longer you live, the more likely you, a friend, a parent, a relative is going to be faced with yes. something that they're not prepared for. Yes. And, and not, not everyone survives, but I'm so glad Jeannie, that that you you have and you are and that this book is in the world. We're going to take a short break now and then we're going to come back. Um, So stay on the line, Jeannie. Stay listening, tuned in all. Um, When Life Gives You Pairs, The Healing Power of Family, Faith and Funny People. Today on Living Writers, Jeannie Gaffigan joins us us via phone. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Today on the program, Jeannie Gaffigan uh, joins us via phone from New York. Uh, When Life Gives You Pairs, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People, um, the book we're talking about today. Jeannie, thanks again for talking. Thank you for having me. Ah, it's well, it's great to great to hear your voice. Um, so you were saying uh, uh, when we took the break, just before the break, that as a writer, because listening to you talk about the process, Jeannie, first of all, um, how you started making it and how it was coming together, and then the part where you talked about writing because uh, it was a way of uh, reconstructing it to, uh, to understand it. Like, did this really happen to me? It se- seems like, like you were saying earlier also, it's like the work of a writer. It's what a writer does to try to discover. Yeah, I, just, I, don't, I don't think that there was ever a period of time where I was like blocked, you know, that just didn't, happen because it was just started like as a matter of fact i I mean suzanne i would drive her crazy i probably wrote a 1000 page book (laughs) and this book is like 300 pages so there's a lot of things that i have that are not that i wrote that are not included because they just didn't 
You know, I mean, there's a, a portion of the book. Um, it's a chapter about um, how I met Jim. And it's kind of just stuck in the book. It's oh, like an essay. It, it's towards the end, Jeannie, even. Yes. So that was kind of this, This I would just like send her like other, like I would just sit down and write an essay. Like I would just feel like <laughs> I would think of something and I would just write an essay and I'd send it to her and she'd be like, okay, this is great, but I don't know if it fits in the book. And then, but there was a bunch like that. It was just like stuff just started flowing. Like there was, it was very like, you know, uh, something happened where, because I, I'm not a memoir writer. I'm a comedy writer. I write TV scripts. I write comedy scripts. I'm not like, okay, this is my 10th memoir, you know? Right. But I just, um, it just was like, oh, you know, I would think of something like the, the you know, there's a part that I refer to, uh, you know, remembering that this therapist gave me a cartoon picture of a woman at a bus stop that was a skeleton. And the, the caption was waiting for the perfect man. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and she had like cobwebs all over her. And it was like it's somewhere I was like writing in the, you know, the proper manuscript where I was kind of following the, the chronology about how it took this kind of an upright, uh, you know, upheaval in my life to realize like why Jim was so perfect for me. Mm. Like, like I was like, Oh, that's why this makes sense now. Even though I love Jim and he's great and everything like that. It's like, you forget. Mm -hmm. And then when, when I got so sick, I don't know who else would have been able to make a YouTube show out of like using a food tube. Like it just, (laughs) it made perfect sense. Because I don't even think that a lot of people could stomach that. I mean, to, to coin a pun. Um, right. Oh, right. So, uh, I don't know. That just happened. Sorry about that. Okay. No. <laughs> so um, Jim, just it just struck me that it, there was a point in my life where I could have not married Jim. And I felt compelled to tell that story. So instead of working on my manuscript... I opened up a new Word document and I just wrote this whole thing about, you know, Jim and I meeting. And it was a little like romantic comedy. And I was like, and I, so I was like, this is the interlude. When people get sick of like reading about like medical stuff, they can read this little <laughs> fun story about, you know, that's why I called it when Jimmy met Jeannie. Because it's like when Harry met Sally, you know? Yes. Yeah. And I had more about how the fact was is that of that era in like the year 2000, that was kind of like a genre. I mean, I think it was like the You've Got Mail era. Right. You know? Right. So I feel like, you know, it was just this fun break for me. But instead of taking a break by like shutting my laptop, I was like taking a break by writing an essay. So it was kind of this really like... um almost like a renaissance time for me as a writer to come out of this. And, but she would also have to be like, okay, stop sending the essays because um, like, for instance, in I, in the book, I describe how having been a home birth person, like having my babies at home in a weird way sort of prepared me to, to take kind of ownership over my medical care. Mm. And Somehow, I wrote a description 
of every single one of my home births and and then in turn how the the child was a lot like their birth none of that is in the book no no so because she was like this is great but i don't know if you know because it's kind of the way the 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 book is structured is that the first part is kind of like a mystery and an adventure that's happening you know it kind of like okay what is happening how are we going to deal with this it kind of keeps going and then there's a surgery and then all of a sudden i'm in the icu yes and i'm reflecting so there's that section and then there's a section of how i'm i'm climbing out of it when i i get home the battle and then i have to start working and then there's kind of a short area about you know next steps right right but in and then I was like, okay, and then there's a fun like interlude where we talk a little bit about where I was with Jim. So, and that follows another story about an anniversary dinner that we had because it was this celebratory situation because we didn't know if we were going to have another anniversary. Yes. Because we were, when this happened, we'd been married 13 years, which is like a suspicious number, right? <laughs> right. And then, so when we had our 14th wedding anniversary, you know, a few months after the surgery. It should have been this really amazing experience. But we wound up with him, he and I, like, fighting at our anniversary. And I put that, it was a very, it's a very intimate sharing in the book. And then, so that's why I put the romantic comedy right after that. Ah, for the structure of that. I see. Yeah. Okay. So there's, you know, there was the method to my madness. Oh, there always is for writers. Well, I mean, you discover things sometimes unconsciously, but then when you're revising and shaping, because like you said, Jeannie, you didn't, you wrote this essay, like it was like a desert island moment for you. It was like a break, right? And you, we were thinking about when Jimmy met Jeannie, but then there was a role, it had work to do in the structure of the book. Of course, my father, by the way, who's a critic. Oh. (laughs) um, Like, honestly, was a critic my whole life, a theater and film critic. Um, wrote me a, a long email about the book, and he was like, "I just think that the the story about you and Jim is misplaced, <laughs> you know." And I was like, "That's so funny that he picked up on that because it was misplaced because there was a debate about it." Because first of all, my editor, first of all, editors should be like sainted, <laughs> and I know that there's a whole thing because it's it's hard to work with an editor because it's like you're back in school and you're submitting a paper and it's coming back with all these red marks on it, right? Right. And you're like, but I was sick, and I went through all this thing, and now I have to correct this. You know, it's <laughs> kind of like that relationship. But yet, I was kind of like, I couldn't wait to get notes. You know, it was like really amazing. And so, like at a certain point, Suzanne was like, I have an idea. Why don't we make the when Jimmy met Jeannie the prologue, like have it oh. the beginning. Mm-hmm. So it's like kind of like the big sick, you know, the romance, and then all of a sudden. Right. But ultimately, I think we both decided that because the, book, the, in, the first chapter starts at the height of the drama. Yes. And then I go back into the chronology. So it's kind of fun to unlock these <laughs> kind of like tools as a writer. And you can realize that you could disassemble any book, really, and tell it in a different way. It's a totally different thing. 
And was that, so for this particular book, Jeannie, was this the first time it happened? Because it seems very different than comedy writing and what you, the being like the, the co-head writer on the Jim Gaffigan show for like screenwriting. Um, and then for the, the comedy shows. Is it the first time that what happened? Well, where you, you realized that there was like these different shapes that you could make, like like you, what you were just talking about with the book, where you can um, you can unpack different pieces or it can unfold in different ways, and you can move. Um, I don't know. Was this? I or mean, I think maybe- that it was like the first time since I was not doing an academic assignment. I think that I knew a lot of this stuff when I was writing like papers and essays in school. And, um, you know, storytelling. And then you get a job and you have a deadline and assignment and all this stuff. And I think there's, they, it, it definitely influences it in a much more quiet way. So, like, when you're writing, like, a, um, uh, a screenplay or, uh, like, when I was writing a screenplay, we definitely would be like, this scene, because remember, you have, like, an A, B, and C story. Yes. So we would sometimes, like, dismantle. Or decide, like, um, you know, like, for instance, we, we wrote this uh, episode, which was, I think, the first or second episode of season two, when we kind of went off the, uh, the rails with the kind of fun, <laughs> like, storytelling techniques. Um, and, we, and the story started out where Jim was being led down a prison hallway. So nobody knows why he's in prison. Mm-hmm. And then... If through the story we start having flashbacks and and you know sort of constructing how he got into prison and then at a certain point the present time takes over so i mean in a in a way i've always known this instinctually but this was just the first time i applied it to this particular genre and when and also it's it became a very challenging thing. So it became less of what I described before, which was like producing something that was a helping me reconstruct what had just happened to my life. So it was therapeutic B, sort of like hoping that I was going to, um, you know, sort for lack of a better term, like a bless someone else with my story who like what I was looking for, who really when needed I was, it? Like, going down the the WebMD rabbit hole, looking for some kind of answer of somebody else to connect with another human experience. Um, but then when it came into the into the phase where we had to like, you know, tighten it up, it became like kind of this fun adventure, <laughs> even though it wasn't fun sometimes because I was like, you know, I have five kids and it was insane um, to find time, but. Like turning in, uh, you know, the uh, manuscript version three, version four, whatever, and then waiting for Suzanne to go through it and give me her notes on it. And some of the notes, and this is, uh, you know, all writers who are listening to this are going to understand this, people who've worked with an editor. Some of them are you're like, oh, okay, this is like in the comment section, you know, it's like the way that you edit. It's like they'll highlight a section and make a comment, and you can accept or reject the comment or answer back, like, what do you mean? You know, it's this conversation right. that's done through by two writers. And 
every once in a while I'd be like, oh, wait, I, I you know, it's just like I'll say something like, oh, and then um, Katie walked in and was totally adorable. And then she would be like, what is the specific way she was adorable? And I'd be like, got it, you know, easy. And then there'd be other times where she'd be like, I feel like this paragraph doesn't fit here. Maybe you could put it in a different area, like maybe when you're in the ICU, you could have this thought. And I was like, wow, I did have that thought in the ICU. But if I put that in the ICU, is that going to have a domino effect on something else I wrote? Mm. So it became this really like, Mm -hmm. you know, detective work (laughs) and like this challenge as a writer to, because you can't just willy nilly, like, because when you're intimately writing something, you don't want to be like, no, I'm not going to kill any of my darlings. So it's a really great exercise to work with an editor because they're going to not, maybe you have to explain something to them or write it better so you can, they can understand why you put it there. Or you have to move it and then you have to deal with all the ramifications <laughs> of moving an idea into a different area of the book. Because as you've been writing the manuscript, you're, you're, you know it better than anyone because you're the writer. So you have to know what you have to pick your battles and you have to be willing to take criticism and make it a fun and challenging thing. But then you also have to be like, I'm going to stick to my guns on this one. I think it's funny. Right. And I'm going to, I'm going to stay with this. And trust your instinct on it. And trust your instincts. Yeah. Jeannie. Jeannie Gaffigan is speaking today from New York about her book and the writing process and about the book in specifically When Life Gives You Pairs, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. You've got Living Writers and I'm T. Hetzel and we'll be right back. Well, sometimes I go out buzzing and I look across the water and I think of all the things what you're doing and in my head I paint a picture. Since I come home, well, my body's been a maggot and I miss your gender hair and the way you like the jaggers. I want you to come on over. Stop making a fool out of me. Oh, why don't you come on over by Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Today on the program, Jeannie Gaffigan joins us via phone from New York. Uh, We're talking about Jeannie's book, When Life Gives You Pairs, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People. Jeannie, thanks uh, Thanks also for picking the songs for today's show. Oh, you're going to blame me? Okay. <laughs> yes, I did. It's true. 
<laughs> I know. Thanks for DJing. <laughs> I hope people aren't getting judgy on the songs, but okay. I, I, you know that it's it's so funny. Like some some folks when they come, they're like, "This is the best part of the show is picking the songs," and I'm like, "I'm glad." That 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 that's but then I'm a little sad that they say that too. But um, well, no, and- honestly, so when I got the e- when I got the email from my publicist, she was like, and there could be no cursing, and I was like, oh, because <laughs> it's not like I like seek out songs with cursing in it. It's just that now they all have it, right? <laughs> right. But well, but so it's like, what's a fun song that doesn't have any cursing in it? Mm-hmm. Okay, no Lizzo. It, it's okay. Like, it's a um, minefield. <laughs> But but you did it. You did great. I did it. You did I great. Did it. <laughs> you did great. Um, and thanks to Gina Brandolino for engineering today, um, queuing up the our voices, the songs, um, and making sure we pipe out over the airwaves. Jeannie. Um, hey, Gina. It's yeah. <laughs> shout out to Gina. Um, Gina. Gina and I are like old friends now. You know that's what often happens during sound check, right? Often. Yeah, we had we like we've been through the trenches together with that sound check. <laughs> don't and don't. It wasn't a smooth sound check. Oh, no. Wait, don't don't tell all our secrets, Jeannie. Not right now. No. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm outing the whole secret. No, but I'm just saying, Gina and I, you know, we've had our we've had hard times together, and we've come through with flying colors. That's I'm I'm cheering. I'm cheering now. Gina's also cheering, raising both hands, arms up. Um, well, well, Jeannie, uh, let's, I also wanted to tell you that um, thanks for talking about uh, the writing process in, in just uh, before we took the last break. Um, I feel like I might play that section of the interview for many of my students when we're talking about revision and, and what it takes to revise something. Because it's, it's hard when you have your draft that you've made, that you've built, um, because that's already an accomplishment to have something and then to go in and um, be open, like you said, to hearing uh, feedback that'll make it stronger. Um, and I also think that a lot of editors, uh, if there were editors listening, they were everywhere. They were sitting up in their chairs a little straighter um, because, it, yeah, it would be great. It, I think there should be more editors um, and to have that relationship you were describing. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh it's actually um there's I'm making like a lot of connections here with the with the um the school thing but also jumping ahead to the editor um thing like being an editor like I was I really wanted to be a fly on the wall in Suzanne's office because I'm sure she was editing multiple books and every like writer is has a different kind of extreme personality and so i was like i wonder if i'm like a difficult writer you know a difficult personality because i would email her all the time about clarifying her notes and you don't get to do that with your professor so and i also think that when i was in school i didn't realize what an amazing opportunity i had like every once in a while, I'd be like, "Oh, this this is really awesome that I get to do this." But it's like when you are in school, and especially when you're choosing your classes, like, "Oh, this sounds like an interesting class." It's like that period of time. It's like when I see my my daughters in high school now, Mari's in high school, and when I see some of the books 
that she's like, oh, I have to like read these three novels and compare them. I'm like, oh, I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> I'm sure she loves to hear that. I mean, my, I know, but you, it's like you don't know what you got until it's gone. Because yes. I'm like, do you want to trade to-do lists? Because mine, mine sucks. <laughs> like what I have to do is so much less cool than reading three novels and like comparing them in an essay. That's so amazing. I would love to do that. Exactly. And I'm just like, you have, like, you have to, like, get, like, she's a great student, but it's like, when I remember being like, oh, great, I got to write a paper. And now I'm like, yay, I get to write a paper for a living, you know? Exactly. So exactly. my advice would be to, like, really enjoy the moment of being in school because it's like, it's just a, such a wonderful time in your life. It's like, you're, you know, what you, you have this. Uh, you're uh, immersed in education, and I, it sh- it should never stop. But like when you have to do everything else and live your life, it's just like you know, reading a book is a luxury. Yes, yes. It's not an assignment, you know. Well, so Jeannie, I feel like you just made a PSA for us then too, <laughs> for for the University of Michigan schools everywhere. Um, and and for lifelong learning in a way too, um, this connects to your imagined society, in a way. Um, one of your other somehow, um, one of the other hats you wear uh, as a founding member, um, you founded a not for profit, the Imagined Society, um, youth led teen service groups to collaborate on ideas and action plans. Uh, to make a, the world a better place. Yeah. Um, was that, that was already in the works pre no. pear shaped tumor, no. right? There was no? nothing. Oh, okay. There was nothing. I have a spark. So there uh, was nothing. It uh, was all post surgery. Like when I think about that, cause it seems like it's always been around. Cause I also have another group with my Catholic church. That's like a post confirmation group that, also sparked the idea for the Imagine Society for me because I was working with young teens who got really excited about service projects. And I met another woman who was doing the same thing uptown, a very different demographic and a more of a much more like urban demographic. And we were like, we should get our groups together to do some like fun thing or whatever. And then she was like, and also the kids from Temple Rudolph Shalom are doing that. They were doing like a, a homeless outreach across the street from where we were doing it. And all of a sudden, like I started realizing that when I was like bedridden, I was thinking all these things that are one of the things that was really difficult for me is because I couldn't do anything. So I had to sort of like rely on other people to help me. And what became very clear was that when kids hit about age 11 or 12, the opportunities for doing like, uh, you know, art classes and all these things really stops. There's not a lot out there for like teens. And there is actually there is a lot out there for teens, but it's not good. Right. There's a lot of not good things that are sort of like detrimental to people's like um, psychology. You know, there's a lot of like anxiety and depression and things that are happening in those years. 
and people are entering, you know, college with like anxiety and depression, like in in, in ways that have never in, in numbers that are, are shocking. Yes, the number of people that identify with having like some kind of you know neuroses, even if they haven't been diagnosed with it, it's 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 a, a questionnaire. A lot of people are are given like these kind of things. You're you're part of the university, so you know this. And so I would say, what is, what can I offer? What have I offered my kids? Because I would see like all these, these planned activities for my younger kids. So, you know, Jim would report to me, he's like, you know, Uncle Patrick is taking Michael to this. Katie's going to the whatever. But there was like nothing going on for Mari and Jack. Jack. Yeah. They just didn't have it. They were, they were like, oh, they're going to go to a movie with their friends. Mm. You know, they, it's okay, fine. But then I was like, what if there was like a place that like really uh, p- kids could feel like they had a voice in changing the world? You know, what if they we were giving kids scaffolding to be like, it's not like that bad. Maybe the things that are, because I was like looking out at the world and all, everyone's fighting and everyone's divided. I mean, you just turn on the news and it's like, it's crazy. You know, it's like always like 45% of people believe this and 45.5% of people believe this and they're totally hate each other. So I was like, what kind of a world, if I died right now, you know, how, what tools am I giving to my like young teenagers to become adults? And then I was like, well, why is it only my kids that I'm worried about? Because right. they, I can do what I can. Yeah. But you know, what opportunities are there for other kids? And so I knew that I, there was like-minded people like who, who thought this way. And you can wake up from surgery and be like, oh, I've been giving a new life, lease on life. I'm going to go out there and change the world. But there's a lot to say about the hand that rocks the cradle changes the world. Like do, you can, if you are engaging with the youth, just think of how you've doubled, tripled your lifespan because they're going to live and they're going to give their gifts to the younger generation. And it just started to seem like, you know, life is short. And what, what can I do to contribute in the biggest way? And the biggest way is the youth. Yes. That's what that's how it kind of came up. I love that, Jeannie. I love it. And and the youth are they're doing it. They're speaking out and making a youth movement for global warming against gun yeah. violence. I mean, it's happening. And you're making sure that there's these connections in, in New York City um, across multiple organizations that already exist, tapping into that. And I'm imagining also sharing resources in different organizations that's across right. the city. Um, Jeannie, we're going to yeah, take. You can check it out. Actually, we have a website org. Excellent. So everyone see what we're doing. Check if that out. It's like, what is she talking about? <laughs> Theimaginesociety.org. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back to talk more today with Jeannie Gaffigan. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers and we'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. Um, today on the program, Jeannie Gaffigan joins us via phone. Um, thanks again for picking the songs, Jeannie. Um, that one was excellent. When And Jeannie's book, When Life Gives You Pairs, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People. Jeannie. I'm having a great time on your show, I have to say. <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm having a great time talking with you. It's it's This is excellent. And, I, you know, we're at we're you know we're at the last quarter of of the show um so because i can't ask you here in person um i wanted to ask if there's if there is something that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to yet as well um because i've got tons of things to ask you but i also know um there might be something that you want to say i would i have loved your question so far so i'm going to defer to you if, if there's something yes. that you have, are dying to ask me, yeah, yes, I'm, I'm delighted. There's been no gotcha journalism here. Oh, right, exactly. Well, that's the last quarter of the show, Jeannie, basically. Uh-oh. It's hard-hitting gotcha journalism. No, Uh-oh. just kidding. No, no totally, totally joking. I actually wanted to, to re- return to the, the idea where when you were saying, like, the reasons why. Like, what 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 the undertaking of making this book happen. Um, and... I think, and we we were talking about it as, well, you, you said, uh, the book has a purpose. You want there to be a book out there in the world um, that other people can find when they need it if they are being faced with a medical diagnosis similar uh, or, or some a large medical diagnosis like, like, like you were, Jeannie. Um, and I would also like yeah. to say, um, or for their family and friends, um, because reading this book is, is, it's also like a survival guide, almost like I know you were doing the, the laundry book <laughs> in a way, but, but this book is, you do survive, thank goodness. Um, but it's a story of that, that uses humor as a way to show that you also aren't alone and many vulnerable moments, um, where the readers can feel um, connected and to feel not alone if someone is uh, potentially going through something similar. Or I'd have to say I saw my sister-in-law in many moments um, with with her battle with cancer um, and, and her experiences. Like she had a Joe in ICU, um, like you talk about and feature a photo of him in the book uh with with hearts around his his name um and so thanks for writing this genie because you you're doing it this book is does have a purpose and, and people well, you know, that means a lot to me and i'm really happy to hear that the book is resonating with both caregivers and people who are facing something because you never know you know, you never know what's going to happen. But I think that what the major theme for me in the book, which I'm hoping that comes across, is gratitude. Like, I'm so grateful that I had this experience because it's showing me how to be grateful. Like, it's, it's the, the, I'm grateful because now I'm grateful. Um, and the other thing is that I don't. I try not to. And I think that we, I had this style before, though. It's kind of how Jim and I have been writing for a long time. So it's like kind of like I have a style. I'm like, oh, I have a style. <laughs> but one of, the, one of the things that I do 
And I didn't really purposely do this because, as you said, it's like the, I was writing like characters before, and and comedy and comedy routines. So when I was retelling the story, I was telling it to a friend, and sometimes the friend was me, right? Like what happened? Okay, if I had to explain to like a friend, if I said, okay, you know, Sky. Uh, McGilligan <laughs> came into the room, and I'd be like, "Here's, let me just tell you about Sky. Okay, he he's like this. This is how I met him, and all this stuff. But it's kind of like I'm having a conversation. So I didn't really feel like this was like some kind of highfalutin, you know, writing project. It was like this, almost like a blog, you know, like you were just saying, "Listen, my friend, let's sit down and have coffee. And let me tell you about how I got through this." And so just like you would with a friend, because people have their own belief system, you never want to be like, I believe in the one true holy God. And if you don't believe in what I believe, you're just not going to be my friend. So I really believe this. I was like, look, this is my model. This is my lens through which I see the world. Okay. I had this experience where I recognized certain things as miracles. I'm not saying you should, but I'm sharing my experience with you. And there's no, and you don't have to believe it. You can be an atheist. You can be any religion. But it was, I am Catholic, and I I grabbed on to anything that I could, um, you know, uh, that I could about, you know, something other than the reality that I saw before me. And anything that could help me pull me out of this like horrible you know uh, ditch that I was slipping into and when I talk about style I feel like when we wrote the Jim Gaffigan show we are a Catholic family which is really not a politically correct thing to, to say it's not really cool right in the world that I live in in the entertainment world and but because we approach it with such like this is how we are, and we totally accept who you are. And this is the way we live our life. We chose to do things in our show, like having a Catholic priest be the character, just randomly like having the family, you know, say grace before their meal, and all this stuff in a not heavy-handed, judgmental way, but a self-deprecating, like, I'm not perfect. No one is judging you about what you believe. And so because I had that I have that way of my personality, I also have that way as a writer, I feel like people are responding to the book who don't believe any of the stuff that I believe. So I, I'm so happy about that. That is like the, uh, such a victory for me because I could have been in a you know dusty corner of the bookstore <laughs> with like you know faith-based uh, right. prayer books. Right. And that's great because I love those people. I love, you know, the choir. You know, you, you, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like uh, people, it's like I, you believe we have the same thing. We all know each other. We all read the same book or whatever. But I really felt like it shouldn't matter. And I'm not going to hide who I am in the book, but I don't want to make it too hard to stomach for people who may not come from that background. So hopefully that's a, a victory. That people responded to it, and and you were and you were saying, Jeannie, too, about like this idea of telling 
a friend about the story. And so you'd be yeah. honest about the parts of you, um, all, all of you. And that's, and that's what When Life Gives You Pairs. This voice on the page, it's, it's quick moving. Um, there's lots of dialogue, too. So you can see your influences as a, as a, a, a writer of, from what you've done before because of the dialogue is excellent. And it's the pacing, it, it moves so quickly. Um, but not so that you don't get a chance to feel things with you and to also um, understand some of the closely observed moments um, that I think can be these um, these beacons for for people um, and and for hope. That's all I can hope. Jeannie, thanks. Thank you so much for for calling, uh, not calling for, thank you for picking up the phone when we called you. <laughs> and, and thank you so much for writing When Life Gives You Pairs, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People. Um, I've loved talking with you today. Well, thank you. I just had a great time. Thank you so much. Um, Jeannie, stay on the line to say goodbye. And, um, and, okay. Thank you so much again uh, to all you listening out there. Thanks for thanks for being with us today here uh, at Living Writers. Um, thanks to Frank Yuli for post-production, to Gina B for engineering. Thanks to George Cooper and Home George for the theme song for the show. Um, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Legend of the Phoenix <laughs> All ends with beginnings What keeps the planet spinning Ah, uh, the force from the beginning
radio. Oh, you, I just heard you. <laughs> Michigan Daily Sports Report. Welcome everyone. My name is Ross Kaufman and I'll be your host this afternoon. We got a full half hour in front of us to talk sports, sports, and all things sports. I would like to introduce you all to our four panelists for today. Tonight we have Ryan Buckman, Charlie Brigham, Gretel Payne, and David Kramer. How are you guys doing today? We're good, thank you. Doing good. All right, it's Wednesday, it's hump day, we're almost there. And for those of you who don't have class on Friday, so close. So cl any of you? No? Yeah, I have class Friday, so oh, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay. Friday class anyway, is trash. We're getting there. Before you know it, it'll be the weekend. And with that being said, we have a full slate here. But first, I want to reflect upon Michigan basketball season 